When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. I am, of course, one part of a fairly dubious and uncelebrated double act. <laughs> With me is Thea Lenaduzzi, eater of cheese, exuberant pronouncer of foreign words and fancier of dogs. Who's the straight one in this? It's me, isn't it? I don't know really. I think I think as we're going to hear from Charlie Higson and his We do piece, not qualify. You don't know. I don't think you, that's the point. It's old fashioned to think one's a yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so one is one I think what he he says in his piece is that one person is one person's job to kind of try to keep the show on the road and, Give and impose some order and the yes. other one just sabotages. And it's very hard to know who's yeah. sabotaging whom. I don't think we should name <laughs> Mutual names. sabotage. Yeah. Dog update. Alf. Alf. Yep, it is Alf. It is Alf. And he uh, when's he arriving? He's not here yet. When he will coming? be a matter of days. A matter of days. And the tension is, is building. And are you taking time off to look after him? Uh, of course I am. Well, I'll be working from home. So <laughs> oh, dear. Is that I'll, be, I'll be running around the fields with a dog yeah. and then I checking th- my emails every now yeah. and again. I think having a new dog and working in inverted commas from home... Let's Ooh. face it, I'm going to be stopping him from, trying to stop him from eating and weighing on everything. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> right. So you're not here next week for that reason. I'm not, no. Even though you're working from home. I'm actually, working, I'm technically, working from Technically, you should call in <laughs> to do this podcast from home I'll if you're you, working. I can pass you over to Alf. Yeah. We might See if he's a vocal and... dog or not. We don't know. I don't know if he barks. Tell you what, we should we should do this. I'm, I'm looking quizzically at Matt here. Can we have a two minute just call in to check how Alf's doing and actually get Alf on the line? <laughs> this yes. is Alf calling. Yeah. All right. I tell you what. This, this time next week, when the is as you're supposed, I, I wouldn't like to intrude upon a holiday, but as you're in, working from home, we'll call you. Thea. Okay, we're going to do that. Um, make sure you're subscribing to the TLS. Google TLS subscriptions and get the best deal this week coming up on the show. Yes. My rather laboured reference to Double Axe had a point. We'll be talking about their role and status in comedy with someone who has experience of it, Charlie Higson, the writer and comedian. He'll be in the studio, as will Margaret Drabble, who's been reading some new releases from the estate of Anthony Burgess, the man who Philip Larkin once called the Batman of contemporary letters. So ubiquitous was his work. We have more of his heroic output to talk about today. A 
Comedy and double acts go together like, well, make your own joke there. But the genre is full of them. The two Ronnies, Laurel and Hardy, French and Saunders, Morecambe and Wise, Fry and Laurie and so on and so on. This year we've seen Laurel and Hardy return to the big screen as played by Steve Coogan and John C. Riley at the end of their careers, struggling with the baggage of their fame and friendship. There's also been books about Morecambe and Wise, Fry and Laurie and the history of comedy double acts more generally. And we got to examine them a fine comic writer once described, I see lazily from Wikipedia, as the missing link between Dick Emery and Brett Easton Ellis which is faintly terrifying, uh, who is himself part of a very successful writing partnership, Charlie Higson. He joins Thea and me in the studio. Charlie, hello. Hello there. That is quite a Dick Emery and Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, I I think that was when I... I wrote some sort of adult thrillers in the early 90s, which were quite extreme, sort of dealing with psychopaths, which is where the Brett Easton Ellis thing... And because I was writing for Harry Enfield at the time, I there guess is, Dick Emery is. sort of made sense. Yeah, it's not, they're, they're not the worst things to be put together. No, I, I you know, it, 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 that's an enduring quote, and yeah. I think it's quite a good one. Yeah, you can live with it. Um, <laughs> before we talk about writing, uh, I thought we might talk about on-screen partnerships. Uh, and Laurel and Hardy's the big movie, uh, Coogan and, and Riley. W- what did you learn from it? Were you familiar? Were you one of these sort of aficionados of Laurel and Hardy before? Well, the movie? I mean, you know, I've grown up with them, and you know. It, it, they were always on the TV when I was a kid. You know, they'd put them on at sort of uh, kids' tea time viewing slot. So they were always there, and I've always loved them. And I knew a bit about the end, about, uh, you know, how sad it was and, you know, how Stan Laurel was the driving force behind it and couldn't let it go. And after uh, Oliver Hardy died, which which happened, I think, quite soon after the events in the film, you know, Stan Laurel carried on writing. And I did know a bit about the tour, which actually I think went a lot worse than it's depicted in, really? in the film. I, I've read a few accounts of, of people at the time going to see it and saying it, actually it was a bit sad, they were very old and they couldn't really do it anymore, but it was nice to see them. Whereas in the film, as as you have to, they, they sort of triumph, they win over small audiences, get bigger and bigger and, and sort of get back on top. And then there's Morecambe and Wise. I mean, the two central double acts, I think, in, in, in your piece and, um, are Morecambe and Wise and Laurel and Hardy. Do you think they're similar? Because there's a kind of a driving force. One of them was more of a driving force than, than the other. They sort of struggled on a bit, didn't they, as well? Yeah, I mean, there was the whole thing in, with Morecambe and Wise at the end of the 70s, when they were at their absolute peak. They got poached by ITV. Oh. And the idea was, apparently... I mean, obviously, they were offered a lot more money, as... As we know, the BBC could, can never afford to actually pay anyone properly, despite what everyone thinks. Yeah. Uh, but the big carrot was that ITV was, was saying they would make a big film for them. And, you know, that was particularly Ernie Wise's thing, as he always wanted to break into Hollywood, you know. He would have loved to have been Laurel and Hardy. But they were at their peak, and which means that they were actually coming down the other side. And the thought of them at that age actually pulling off making a, a, a movie, it, it just doesn't make sense. They were sort of inspired by, um, and this is covered quite well in Gary Gary Morecambe's book about them, Eric's son, that they were sort of inspired by the success of the Pink Panther films. And they thought, well, Peter Sellers is older than us. He's having a lot of international success making comedy. And as Gary Morecambe says, you know, there was as much chance really of them breaking into cinema like Peter Sellers as there was of Peter Sellers making a big primetime sketch show for the TV. But they thought it was an equivalence. They thought that... that, that they one... thought, yeah, you know, if he can do it, you know, we can do it, we're, we're funny. But I think, I think it's quite hard to do a double act like that in, in a film because it's, so, it it's all so based about the interaction with the audience. 
Were they funny? I mean, it comes to me because I'm... Were a, they funny? What kind of a question is that? Well, 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 I, I, they kind of have... I, I don't, you're going to punch me in the face when I say this, but they kind of come to me with a sort of patina of naffness, Morecambe and Wise. When I, think, when I think of them, I kind of think Christmas specials. They, 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 I can't think of laughing. I think my dad well, laughing. Well, I, I, I... You know, for, for me, Eric Morecambe is very funny. I think what they actually did quite well was that Ernie Wise sort of encapsulated... Naffness. That was his thing. He was this little guy who wanted to be a song and dance man and break into Hollywood and and get his plays formed. And we knew it was all vanity. And actually, he was he was hopeless. And Eric knew that, but Eric was very loyal to him. And 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 that that gave space for Eric to sort of be to dance around that. And and you know, I think he he did some stuff physically. He was he was enormously good. Like Laurel and Hardy, he he. He moved beautifully. You know, all four of them were, were great dancers and had grown up in that sort of variety music hall tradition of, of, of doing a bit of everything. And Morecambe and Wise, this was a bit of a revelation to me. I didn't realise that in their peak, their peak time, they they didn't really write. They didn't really write their material. It was they one never man. wrote. No, they never they, wrote any. So of their stuff. they never wrote any of it. No, no. Oh. Uh, well, that being said, I don't know what they did when they were originally. Yeah, I mean, they must have started the kind boards, of. But yeah. I think they were using sort of traditional routines and mm. things but certainly once they moved to tv successfully on, on itv in the in the 60s they had this double act writing partnership of hills and green who wrote all their shows for about 10 years it was i think eddie braben actually prevented them from being if they'd carried on with hills and green they would have they would have just been naff and they probably would have been forgotten but eddie braben did Modernise them and make make them more interesting. And they introduce because it kind of thinks this sort of pathos that you bring. This sense of failure is part of the act, and so it's yes. not just laughter. There's something more sophisticated going on there. Yes, and I, I you know, I, I think that's what Eddie Braben brought out so well was 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 the, 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 the he made it a relationship. You know, he, it wasn't a real relationship. That wasn't how they were in real life. But no. it, it worked as a TV relationship, and he and he gave him depth. And that was always the great thing about Laurel and Hardy. You know, you, you did feel that they they lived in in their world. But they didn't. They weren't. They, and you say that no. both of them they they wouldn't go out for, for they the they were they were very different types. Oliver Hardy liked living the high life, gambling, womanizing, drinking, and Stan Laurel would stay at home writing the scripts. <laughs> You need someone to do that, though. You do. You uh, do. Which is we're going to get to, because I find the writing of comedy... Uh, we, we talk a lot about pairs that you mentioned, um, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, who did Porridge. Mm. Pythons, when you talk to them, there was... Um, I think Eric Idle was on his own, but they, yeah. they split into pairs otherwise, didn't yes, they? they did. yeah. uh, and you wrote with Paul Whitehouse yes, for, for the yes. fast show. So what, what is the dynamic? Do you think comedy needs a person to bounce it off? Is that, is I, think that... it, I think it does help a huge amount. I mean, you know, there have been some great solo writers like Eddie, Eddie Braben who did it by himself, although it drove him half nuts. Um, but I, I, I certainly find writing comedy, it, it makes it much easier if, you've, if, if you're trying to make someone laugh and someone you respect and you both try and make each other laugh and that that works stays in. And, and, and you know, I think for any writing partnership to work, it's a bit it's cliche to say it, but it's like a marriage. You've both got to do something different. You've both got to bring to it what the other person can't. So how did it work with you and Paul Whitehouse? Um, I tend to do the sitting at the computer making sense of it all while he sort of is more freeform roving around throwing out ideas and doing funny voices and I'll think oh, how, how can I make that into a, a sketch or a piece or a character or whatever I like your, uh, your left hand right hand of a pianist analogy 
So you're the left hand, is that right? I don't know, Pete Abbott's the right hand. Yeah, you haven't really properly read the article. <laughs> <yet>. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, yes. It's, uh, you know, I, I say it slightly tongue-in-cheek because it's a little bit poncy, but yes, <laughs> the left and right hand of a piano where the, the, the left hand, which is what I mainly do, yeah. is you're giving it... Yes, you see, you, yeah. you were right. Yeah. Is, 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 is giving it the structure and the, you know, holding down the, the, the sort of the harmonic roots of the whole thing and keeping it all together when the right hand is the one that does all the flourishes that, that everybody kind of pays attention to but on its own the right hand is just as I said in the article is just twiddly bits mm. Is there a sense of composition I mean because presumably there's a tension in all double acts as well which may or may not be creatively full of potential where if someone is the slightly showier one and the other person is, is perhaps uh, doing the, the slightly more effortful side of it is there a tension that can build up i think in any long-term working relationship inevitably tensions arise because you're going to get that thing of one of them thinking actually i'm the clever one yeah i can do this without myself. me this wouldn't work and but you do have to keep reminding yourself actually you both rely on the other person but i mean a huge number particularly of writing double acts have sort of broken up acrimoniously and then they, they never talk to each other for years yeah. i was i was telling stig just before we came on that um a couple of my friends are a, a comedy duo, mm. uh, Chiara and Roisin. And my friend Chiara basically said that she learned every life skill you could ask for from being in this duo. Compromise, responsibility, <laughs> humility, all of these things. And she said that's all just from, you know, five years of, of working with the same person day in, day out and having to explain everything. Something You know, you would think you wouldn't have to explain a joke, but sometimes you do. And it's only through explaining it that then you can make it work yeah well it, it certainly gives a great strength to your material because you've tried it out and you've tested it with the other person and you 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 know where you've analyzed where the weaknesses are and you've fixed that so by the time you present that to someone else hopefully you've you've got something that that, that is pretty watertight but you've got to be very honest i mean presumably if, if you're working with someone and you say something you think's funny and they and paul turns around to you that's not that's not funny that's that, well, it, well it happens yeah, that, yeah and, you you do, said, and you do need to be honest yeah I mean, the, 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 one of the characters I did on, on the Fast Show, the car salesman called Swiss Tony, yeah. I only managed to get him on in the third series because Paul kept saying, I don't think it's very funny, I think we should do it. And eventually <laughs> I said, look, I'm just going to do it, OK? And I did, and, and, and it was extremely funny. And extremely successful. <laughs> and extremely su- Do you say that? Do you say, do you say that to I, told I told you so. I, I, I told you that would work out. Um, when you're in a double act, I've interviewed double acts. They're kind of a nightmare to interview, actually. Uh, not least I'm not a very good interviewer, but the, the main point is... I think when people are very close, it's quite hard to interview them because they're they're finishing each other's sentence or laughing at each other. Yeah, well, they do their shit. Yeah, they? but do you, do you find yourself falling into a role when you're interviewed with? with well, I did. I did talk about this a little bit in the article. Is that is that when we're interviewed, my urge as the left hand <laughs> is always to kind of explain and say why we did things and how we did things and be quite dry and probably quite boring. But you carry the thing. You carry the thing. Well, I'm trying to, because I think, well, what they probably want is, is the facts. <laughs> mm. Whereas Paul's drive is towards entertainment. So he's just trying to make the interviewer laugh, which actually in the end <laughs> is probably what they want. If you're interviewing a double act, you want a funny article, not a dry history. So that's the closest I've been to in that sort of dynamic of being the straight man trying to make sense of it all while the other person is just kind of extemporising around you and trying to trying to rip it all apart. You say in the piece, though, that the, the, that sort of idea of the straight man and the funny man, it doesn't always uh, no, well, exist. You no, know, and I think Lauren Hardy are a classic example of that, that, that. Some people say, well, you know, Hardy was the straight man, but he was as funny as Laurel 
in a very different way. Yeah. And so what I talked about really is, is, is one of them who's trying to sort of hold things together and the other's trying to pull them apart, I think is a better description of, of how a double act works, although it's not as snappy as straight man and <laughs> no. a funny man. Fry and Laurie are also in this. And again, who's a straight man and are they, Fry and Laurie? And actually, when I think of Fry and Laurie, I think of kind of ensemble, I think of Blackadder, which isn't them. Jeeves and Worcester is more than but they didn't write it. I mean, are, I mean, are they... Well, the first, the, the, the very first stuff they were doing on TV when they broke through doing Saturday Night Live and Friday Night Live, they very much were a double act on yeah. that. Uh, and they were really funny on that. Were they good? Do you remember them coming out? Oh, and- yeah, totally, because, you know, that's the, sort of first, that's the first work I was doing in TV, so watching them at work was was fantastic. And then on the back of that, they did their, their sketch show, which actually ran for quite a few series. I've seen, have you seen it here? A bit yeah. of final... It's funny. I mean, I, I, funny. I can remember bits of it in a way that Yeah, you, I mean, you can't it's always. weird that it, even though it was on for quite a long time, I think unless you're unless you're a real Friar Laurie aficionado, it, it, it's not probably as well known as some of the other sketch shows that are around at the time. No, I, well, I grew up on Morecambe and Wise in Italy, which is quite weird. Were they big in Italy? <laughs> no, my grandparents used to tape, so they'd arrive with a suitcase full of tapes, and it was mostly Morecambe and Wise and the <laughs> Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> and did you watch them? And what did you think? Yeah. I remember loving it, but I'm not. I I don't know. I mean, probably most of it, I I didn't quite get, but I was aware of. There being three generations sitting on the sofa or watching the same thing and laughing, so I think it was kind of bound up in the context of that. I kind of remember my dad watching it and and my brother and I thinking it was naff. That's why I kind of have this sort of naffness sense with more Wise. Well, when were you watching it? Though? So this would have you been. See, you look a lot younger than mid eight mid eighties. Yeah, you see, by the mid eighties, they were on ITV and the, the show wasn't very good. And it wasn't good. Well, Eddie Braben wasn't writing it anymore. Yeah, because contractually he was tied to the BBC. So. Yeah. You know, they they were at their peak in the in the seventies, and it was event TV, and yeah, you know, a lot of it was sort of old fashioned sketches. Which, but, but the really good stuff, which was which was the two of them, like the stuff on the empty stage, just the two of them, yeah, as themselves, two of them in their flat, and and those those bits were great. But there were traditional sketches which perhaps haven't lasted as well. Before we get to where are the double acts of today, which is the mm. sort of question you you end your uh, piece on, um, are there any other double acts? Yeah, <laughs> well, no, exactly. I want to talk about that. Uh, are there any? Who are the other ones we haven't talked about? I mean, if you're double acts that aren't in this uh, piece we haven't mentioned that you would say are the ones to point to? Well, um, one of the books I reviewed is that is called Double Act, I think. Yeah, the Double Act. The Double Act. A history of British comedy duos. Um, but he sort of slightly arbitrarily has a cut-off point of, of the sort of end of the 80s. Uh, whereas in actual fact, there were quite a few good British Double Acts that came to prominence in, in the 90s, such as Mitchell and Webb, um, Vic and Bob, who you know were, were probably the most direct descendants of Morecambe and Wiles. Where you kind of felt there was a friendship and there was a, there was a hinterland yeah. outside the show. And, and, and what they were doing, everybody used to say, well, oh, wow, it's just mad and surreal. But actually what they were doing was a very traditional old-fashioned music called Double Act. But there, was, <laughs> there were strange bits <laughs> in it as well. But, but at, at the core, if you just sort of let go and said, I'm not going to try and work out what this all means, I'm just going to go with it. You know, you could have been watching an act from the 1930s. Yeah, and that's where this comes, because in Jeeves and Worcester novels, I'm very conscious that they often talk about Pat and Mike, which is a double double act, which is two people kind of 
banging each other on the head with umbrellas and 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 that sort of thing. Does this come out of musical? Is this where this? Oh, this, totally. Yeah, yeah. And it's the idea of just two people not quite getting on and sort yes, of prodding and poking. you'd have the sort of patter merchant who'd come out and be the straight man role. Yeah. And he'd say, "Oh, I'm going to sing a song," or you know, to try and do a bit, and then you'd get the sort of clown who would subvert the whole thing. Is it? Old-fashioned. So, we've wandered from. I didn't finish oh, mentioning good. the double acts. Go on, the next moment we're getting more double acts. <laughs> Liam, <laughs> Lee and Herring. Lee and Herring. Stuart Lee started uh, as a double Saunders, yeah. um, Armstrong and Miller. I mean, you could say that uh, Matt Lucas and David Williams were a double act of sorts, although they never sort of. I think to be a pure double act, which is why perhaps some of those you 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 would question, you have to sort of go out as we are ourselves, whether it's Vic and Bob. Yeah. Lauren Hardy, Morecambe Wise, um, and a lot of those acts didn't. They, they, although they worked together, they, they, they were mostly doing sketches and being other people. But even in which, Mitchell and Webb, there were bits in the show where they were supposedly themselves. And, and they were both writing and performing. Yes, they were. Does that matter? Because it's like, I don't know if this feel when you say Morecambe Wise didn't write their own material. Mm. I, I, I well, that was the big change in, in, in the 80s. I mean, that's really what alternative comedy was about. It was people were going to write their own act. It wasn't just someone would write them a load of gags and they'd do it. It was personal. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, pretty much all the good comedy since then. I mean, it's obviously something that sitcoms like Blackadder are different, but, but sketch-type comedy tends to now be written by the people who are in it. It must be quite strange, I think, if you've created a character, say, Alan Partridge, so Steve, yes. Coogan and, and Steve Coogan and uh, Armando Iannucci. Stephen, I think the former... Stephen, Stephen Coogan, sorry, Stephen <laughs> Coogan. Um, so they, they created this character, and, and now I think they, they're still writing, but with the Gibbons brothers. And so yes. it must be quite strange to create a character and then allow someone else to... To continue to create him or well, to change I mean, him? Or? Yeah, I mean, you know, he originally was writing it with Amanda Iannucci and Patrick Marber. Um, and when they both went on to do other things, I was reading the interview with Steve the other day where he sort of said he actually felt a little bit bereft that he slightly that they deserted him, which is a bit disingenuous because actually he buggered off to Hollywood and tried to, <laughs> tried to become a big film star. Uh, Not entirely like unsuccessfully. <laughs> well, he did well. This is, he, this is... he, he did well. Who? Coogan. Yes. Yeah. But but he didn't actually become a massive film star. No, he's no. done some great films and he's brilliant in Stan and Ollie. Is it, good, is, it a, is it a good film? It is a good film. Yeah. And he's very good in it. He's actually quite moving in it, which I've not seen him do before, really. Um, but Partridge is always there, really, because Steve Coogan is Alan Partridge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I, you know, I think he would he would probably admit that. But but he's he, you know he lucked upon finding these two these two twin brothers who who started writing the the books for him and stuff. Mm, their dynamic and must be incredible to to watch. I think. Yeah, just, that's a weird If you're one, if, you know if you're friends, that's one thing. But as twin brothers, you yeah. have this. And so they are, are they sort of ventriloquizing Coogan then now? Yeah, which yeah, is, totally. I mean, they wrote those sort of big sort of autobiographical Coogan books and yeah. then worked with him on on all the Sky stuff. Uh, and so now he's come roaring back, being, being able to do this show because he's got he's got the, those two to do all the hard work for him. <laughs> we have uh, we have a guy writing for the paper, Jonathan Lynn, who wrote Yes Minister. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I've met him a couple of times, and he talks about his friendship with I can't suddenly gone blank who the other person who wrote Yes Minister is. It's Lynn and Jonathan Lynn and <sighs> I should know. Yeah, I'm gonna look it up in a minute. Um, but and he's very left wing, and the guy who uh, the other person who wrote it was very right wing. Uh, 
And there was a kind of a trade-off as they were doing this. Uh, and for a political comedy, that kind of worked. They were bring, each one was bringing something the other one didn't have. And I was kind of, I, I was kind well, of taken by that. Say that, that. Every dollar is what you've got to have. And particularly for a political thing like that, you know, if, if it had... Anthony J. Anthony J. Jonathan Lynn and Anthony J. Yeah. You know, if it had been pushing a political agenda, that show would have not been nearly as... It's a great. It's, it's a great show. I, yeah, I, I think but it, you know, it is about the, the civil servants who are always there, whatever government is in. Yeah. It's the same guys who actually work the system, and you know, it was a fantastically well written show. Uh, just to go back to one question that, that Theo raised: that have any of your characters that you've written for the fast show then other people written them? Did that how it work with the fast show that you, you might invent them? Did, then, did you ever see someone else put the lines in their mouth? Well, uh, some of them were co-written. I mean, Swiss Tony, I, I used to co-write. Uh, certainly, when we we're doing the, the sketch show. I used to co-write that with Bob Mortimer because despite the fact that he comes across as a lovely avuncular fellow on his fishing programme with Paul, he's actually a filthy little man. <laughs> um, and so he was very good at writing the rude stuff for Swiss Tony. <laughs> and we did a sitcom where, you know, I, I, I had a team of writers. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was always co-writing, but... Yeah, I mean, any help I can get, I'll, I'll take. And you were fine with that. You people, people got the and once people get the character and get the voice, you, you can think yeah, they can do it. Yeah, because ultimately, it's me that, that is performing it. I have the final control over it all. Yeah. So I don't think I could have could do a Swiss Tony that was entirely written by someone else. No, you have to have it. Do the writing with them. Come on, we're going to get to the point. Where are the great double acts of today? Your piece says there is one pair who, in many ways, fill the shoes of Eric and Ernie. In many ways, they do it. not in every way. <laughs> yeah. I'm not. I don't think. Theo was slightly appalled at, at this. I thought, but only as you pointed out, because I do not watch, so I'm not familiar. I'm not familiar with their oeuvre. Enough. There you are. You, see, so you can't make a judgment. <laughs> exactly. So I mean, I, I, they are not as. We're about to get to it. Go on. Let's see who it is. You know, they are not as funny as Morecambe and Wise. Yep. But. As I say, they fulfil the same role. And it is. The tension will be killing. It is killing me, sure. and I know who it is. What? Anton Deck. Deck. Oh, Anton Deck. Said yes. oh, you didn't say who it was. <laughs> Anton Deck. Oh, sorry, yes, Anton Deck. Anton Deck. Anton Deck. Well, you see, they they are the only double act now around, as far as that I can think of that comes yep. to mind. They are massively popular. Yeah. They, they have big Saturday night shows of various natures. Yeah. They go out as themselves, as Anton Deck. I mean, obviously, they're versions of themselves. Yep. And they have that shtick where they, you know, they play off each other. They're very warm. They're very family friendly. So on all those levels, they are like more common white. And I was saying to Theo, they do do comedy. They do do comedy. I mean, because you might think if you've just seen some of the sort of talent shows that they've hosted, which is fairly straight, yes. straight up and down presenting, but actually an awful lot of things. And one of the reasons why I'm a celebrity, get me out of it, is so successful, yes. it was said, was because they do gags really. In, but it in, says, do they have yeah. sketches within... Then Saturday, in, in the Saturday night, in some of the Saturday night live things, the, uh, Saturday, sorry, Saturday shows, Saturday night takeaway, and things like that, they they will do sort of sketch type mm. things, but they're best as themselves, just 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 playing off each other. And are mm. they funny enough? Do you think for to 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 take the? Well, as I say, in many ways they're like. Oh, so I don't, you know, they're, uh, they're not as funny as Malcolm was because they they don't have an Eddie Braben to be writing fantastic material for them, and because most of what they do is very ephemeral. Yeah, they're better at being themselves rather than doing the sketches. So they haven't done any great classic sketches that are constantly going to be repeated at Christmas. But you are right because we've got a picture at the, uh, of your in your piece, which is sort of uh, Laurel and Hardy, um, Morecambe and Wise, Fry and Laurie, and they are really the only two that you'd put. You could see you put it, and the people know automatically who they are. They stand in the same relationship the whole time, don't they? Yeah, but because you know, I mean, we don't really make 
that kind of show anymore. Mm. We don't make sketch shows. We don't, certainly don't make the sort of shows that had their heyday in the 70s, which were the sort of, well, like the Mork and Wise show, yeah. where there'd be music and dancing and then there'd be some sketches and there'd be some... And we don't make the, and we don't make the, the fashion, don't make sketch shows like the fashion. No, lab, no, do we? we don't make... We, so, the, so the comedy that's on now tends to be, obviously, panel shows. But on some of those, you get you get a sort of a, a double act mm. dynamic, like on Would I Lie to You, the relationship between Lee Mack and... Uh, David, David Mitchell is yeah. a sort of a double act. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the principle you think gets attenuated and moved around, but ultimately it pops up in wherever. I think people the... love to see that thing where one person is bouncing off off someone else. I think that's right. Uh, Charlie Higson, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since Anthony Burgess's centenary in 2017, Manchester University Press has been busy revising and publishing the work of this local lad done good. No small feat given the extent of his exploits. After publishing his first novel at the age of 39, the self-described grapher man was, it seems, never once idle. By the time he died in 1993, there were 33 works of fiction, including numerous scripts accepted or aborted for film and television, several translations, including the sonnets of the great blasphemous 19th century Roman poet Giuseppe Gioacchino Belli, libretti, plays, short stories, a couple of children's books, and a great deal of reviews, essays and talks. The latest instalments in the Irwell imprint, a nice nod there to the author's wish that his complete works be published in an Irwell edition named for the muddy and gravelent local river, have now arrived. And Margaret Drabble joins us in the studio to tell us what, why and how they are. Hello, Margaret. Hello. Um, so we have four rather different works here to consider, three fictional works and one critical, um, a talk. So um, let's approach chronologically. Tell us about uh, Puma, uh, published in 1975. This is a science fiction work about an asteroid coming to engulf and seize the Earth. And it was going to be made into a catastrophe movie. 
which never got made, but was published as part of a series of science fiction novels, which I haven't read, but this was meant to be standing on its own, and the text has now been rescued and published as a science fiction novel just by itself. And it's a very good read. Is it good? It's a really good read. I mean, it's not my thing at all, and no. frankly, if the TLS hadn't made me read it, I wouldn't have bothered. <laughs> but I got into it, because it's got a lot of vigour and sort of um, verbal play and good characters, and I really, I really enjoyed it. There's a detail you mentioned um, of asteroids being described as uh, vermin of the sky, which I thought was particularly good. That's wonderful. <laughs> that That's in a footnote. I mean, there are some excellent footnotes in this oh. edition because people have had such fun editing Burgess because he was such a know-all. And so looking at what he discovered and putting a footnote on it is fun. And that was a proper astronomer, I think an Austrian astronomer, who called him the vermin of the sky. And I just love this. I, but This is a huge cat of the sky, <laughs> cat for catastrophe. And I just love that sort of idea of it devouring us. Mm. Very good. And he's a I mean, the thing about Burgess is, he, at one level, he is a very literary figure because he, you know, man of letters, writes reviews, know it all. Yeah. <laughs> but he was happy churning it out. I mean, he was a he was a hack writer. I mean, so is this an example of a sort of him, him putting on the genre cloak and 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 doing a bit of genre? It was him going off to Hollywood and making money. I mean, he really he wrote some very funny. Um, bits of fiction about Hollywood, but he actually rather loved it, I had a feeling. He, he liked the money. He never earned enough from serious fiction. So he was, he was happy to go off and write films that never got made. He never made enough money from serious fiction? No, no. The only re- serious novel that brought him money was Clockwork Orange. Which he didn't and, think was, was, and he didn't think that was serious, really? No, exactly. And it was also probably through the movie that it sold so well. So, yeah. no, he, he, he wanted to write sort of James Joyce-style books which never sold very well. And as we know, Joyce was supported by his brother most of his life. Yeah. And I think Burgess just was was a decent man. He wanted to earn his living for his wife and then his other wife. And so he worked at whatever came his way. He was a hack. He was a hack, yeah. Well, he was and reviewing at one point... He was just reviewing everything, wasn't he? He reviewed his own book, didn't he, for the Yorkshire Post? Very naughty. <laughs> he naughtily reviewed his own book. Was yes. that a joke? That wasn't a postmodern gag. That was a kind of. I, I think it was to to trick the editor who shouldn't have sent it to him. I think it was it was a sort of double joke. I, I think, but he he was according to Blake Morrison, he was a very good and conscientious reviewer and always turned in his copy on time. God bless um, him. And um, and <laughs> would, <Red> t- yeah. <laughs> would take on almost anything. I mean, he was he was a, he was. A, a good hack. Because John Updike was the kind of the same, wasn't he? he was you know, Martin Amos writes about him. He, he would review the latest Fiat Pinto. If you sort of, if you told John Updike to go and do something, he would just just yeah. churn it out and, and come back. There's obviously a connection between sort of volubility and then ne- never running dry and wanting to be working all the time. Yeah, but you don't uh, always associate with maybe you do with novelists. I mean, you're you're a novelist. The idea that you've got to earn your keep, you've got to put the shift in, and it's it's a, it's a long days and efforts. Yeah, I always like to have something on the go. Um, but it's, I think Burgess was an alcoholic and I think, well, he was a very, very heavy drinker. And I think it was his way of warding it off, like some other writers we could name. It was a way of keeping yourself sane and employed, even while drinking quite a lot. Ben Masters, a couple of years ago, I think it was 2012, it must have been, the 50th anniversary of A Clockwork Orange, he said that Burgess had an inherent distaste for the popular. Do you think that's fair? A distaste for the popular? Just Because I'm just thinking about, you know, how he would go off, he wanted to go off and make his fortune in, in Hollywood, and he kind of must have loved that that idea of mass media, in a sense. He loved the mass media, but not in the novel. I think mm. he kind of divided himself up in, into mm. the serious writer, like James Joyce, mm. and the person who could... Um, 
write a screenplay and please the masses. I think he would... I mean, the evidence is that he was upset by Kubik's success with The Clockwork Orange, that he was made anxious by its great success and by the violence that it unleashed Mm. or or allegedly unleashed. So I, I think there were two parts of him. He wrote a book before Clockwork Orange, which I read for the purpose of this exercise called... I think it's called Honey for the Bears, which is set in Russia, in which you see a lot of the original ideas of Clockwork Orange Orange, but in a kind of almost sort of uh, biographical, autobiographical format. So you see it all comes from somewhere, but that book didn't sell so well. But then Clockwork Orange sort of hit the mainstream. And he resented that. I mean, I've seen quotes of him where he said, you know, because I think if he wanted to be remembered... He wouldn't have wanted to be remembered by Clockwork Orange. And that's the only, and that's, as a minor novel. Well, it is a minor novel. Mm. And, and it really is Kubrick's fame, mm. perhaps you could say, rather than his, that that, um, that means most to us. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the next book you look at is the brilliant title, which sounds odd to, to, odd to the ears of TLS people, Beards, Roman Women. Such a ludicrous title. <laughs> I just can't believe it, yeah. I can't believe they chose it. He wanted it to be called Rome in the Rain. because oh, the, that's quite which nice. Which is a much nicer yeah. title. And the novel really is was inspired by a series of, of photographs of Rome in the Rain. Basically, they're all very watery photographs. And, and the photographer, whose name I forget, was trying to find a writer to do a travelogue. But Burgess came up with this idea of writing a, a novel to go with these images, which are all very nicely reproduced in the Irwell edition. And what is it a good book? Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a confessional book about his first marriage and his second marriage and everybody behaves very badly but they're quite intense and passionate well it sounds like the characters have more flesh and blood on them than perhaps in puma oh yes much more i mean in puma they're sort of exaggerated stereotypes Mm. um but but in beards roman women it is really a terrible title (laughs) they're more kind of um well they're real i mean Uh it is his first wife and his second wife liana the second wife who's the roman um photographer very much of the sort of um, dolce vita period and the first wife who died of alcohol and in fact his first wife was called lynn so there's some play going on there yes absolutely I just can't believe that title now I think about it. How did the... The Americans (laughs) apparently insisted on... You see, the footnotes are so useful in this edition because it's not a very serious point, but it's interesting to know that it was the US that chose that title. Well, I think in in some ways there is a kind of serious point because it didn't sell, presumably. I don't think so. Because, I mean, I'd never heard... I'd never heard of it. Well, if you've never heard of it... No, no, I'd never heard of it. And, in fact, when um, I was asked to review it... I thought it was by Mary Beard. I mean, I thought, I thought there's, they've obviously like uh, stuck be. a little package of books together. Yeah. And she has commented on Burgess, but not, nothing of the sort. The, the, the narrator in this novel is called Mr Beard, which is the reason why. But he's only got two Roman women and one's his wife, so it doesn't seem very um, meaningful. Um, should we move on to the next one, which isn't really by um, uh, Burgess? It's kind of based on a script of his, um, The Black Prince, which Adam Roberts has turned into a novel, is that right? That's right, yes. A so, historical novel. This is good, bad, indifferent? It's it's good. I mean, I don't think I would have read it had I not been asked to do so. You've only read stuff you've been paid to do him, and not very much either, <laughs> Margaret, to do it. So it's very decent of you to... <laughs> I always think that's the real test. I often think that, would I carry on with this if it wasn't my job? But is a fairly good test of whether a book's worth it. Well, in this case, it was worth it, because I would never have picked it up voluntarily because I'm not very good on historical fiction. Oh, do you not like it? Well, not really, no. And this is extremely violent. Well, it's set during the 100 Years' War. Is that right? It's set during the 100 Years' War 
and it's the Black Prince um, oh, yeah. uh, himself. And the, the, the battles of Cressy and Agincourt, uh, not Agincourt, we don't get that far, but it, it's all about Aquitaine and um, Poitiers, and it's oh. of horrific I l- violence. I love historical fiction, Margaret. Would I yeah, like this? You probably would. It's, 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 it, it's told in a very, um, I won't say postmodern, because it's more Theodore Dreiser. It's sort of, um, mm. it's, it's got sort of headlines from newsreel and, and camera angles. But, um, but the historical stuff is really good, and you can tell that Adam Roberts has done a lot of work on medieval warfare, and it's horrible. So it's an homage, but it stands up on its own. It doesn't sort of need doesn't need to be next to Burgess for... No, not at all. It stands up by itself. And I was very interested that this was published by crowdfunding. Mm. And it's oh, perfectly yeah. serious Unbound. book. And, and has been published by crowdfunding. And I thought, well, that's really good, that, mm. that this perfectly serious work, which obviously um, involved a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of reading, found enough people to believe in it and to appear in a rather handsome edition. I think that's excellent. Does it feel bad? Jessian, does it feel like it comes somehow from the imagination of Burgess? It a bit of it in a way it does. There's this very scatological element. There's an awful lot about diseases of the bowel and the plague and this, that and the other. But there's also some very good jokes. I liked very much about the joke, if I can remember it, about how Julia how they recognise the name of Julius Caesar, because he really was a Caesar. He seized other people's lands. And that is just a very funny joke on is the it? page. Yeah. And Bird Burgess did that on nearly every page. Did and it, yeah. he, he he punned out well, I, I love a pun. Yeah, I people, quite like a yeah, pun. You yes. can't, yeah. <laughs> I love it too much, uh, Theo. People would hardly say it at the TLS, possibly. I love a pun <laughs> not headline. Me, not me. Uh, yes, well, <laughs> yeah, so do I. Yeah. Um, what, was, what was he like as a critic? We have one of his talks here, uh, Obscenity in the Arts. It started as a talk. Frankly, it was a bit of self-defence. It was an apologia because he delivered this on Mal- in Malta where he'd gone with his wife, his second wife, as a tax evader. Not very successful. He wasn't very good at anything practical and he kept getting into trouble and, and he got into trouble with the censorship. I mean, he was a born Catholic, but he wasn't a practising Catholic, but Malta was very Catholic and the censorship was very heavy and he was always getting into trouble. So he thought he'd deliver this lecture and say what obscenity was and why it did or didn't matter. And when, when he was in Malta, censorship Take, took on a very specific role in his life because all of the books that he, or many of the books that he was being sent to to, to review, were got stuck in the postal service. They weren't allowed yeah. through to him. Is that right? Yes, I mean he hadn't foreseen this at all. But <laughs> and, and I mean the most surprising books got stuck in the in the system. People took against the title. They took against um, the book jacket, and and they didn't arrive. So he had difficulties with the people he was supposed to be working for. Uh, and was his ver- was his verdict on obscenity and censorship anything surprising, or was it just obscenity is okay and censorship is bad? Uh, obscenity is okay. Pornography is okay if it's written to to just please. I don't think any of them foresaw the the violence that was coming our way with um, the internet and the total um, deregularization of, of, of content. Yeah. Uh, and so he was uh, in favour of books being published, whatever they were like. And there's, there's some interesting stuff in that, in that talk, which he did brush up, I think, for publication, about um, Pamela Hansford-Johnson, uh, Pamela Snow, um, who wrote about the Moors murders. And he was very annoyed with her at the time because she'd named... They were friends, but she had named him as somebody who was too deregulatory. And um, I always thought that she had a point because if your library is full of um, 
very violent matter and then you go and violently kill people. It's just possible there's some connection with your reading habits, you know. Um, so all that argument is put in his talk, which he delivered to the good people of Malta. And then I think later in his life he slightly changed his mind. Yeah, so the, the Malta talk was, was that in the mid-70s? It was the 70s. In it the was 70s. at the very height of... Um, of permissiveness, really. Right, and so then he, you mentioned towards the end of your piece um, that by 1993, which is shortly before he died, he, he did revise he, his, his, he his was opinions. Re- according to Blake, he was retracting his views, but I mean, I have no first-hand evidence of mm. that. But but I, I think he, he probably was. There's an argument, that he, we talked about Clockwork Orange being regarded as a minor work by him. What do you think should be regarded as his major works? What sort of writer? We talked about him as a hack, which mm. he clearly was. Uh, but he was also very uh, literary. What, what, what would you? What would he be content with being remembered for? And what do you think he should be remembered for? Is it the same I, thing? I think he would be content to be remembered for Earthly Powers, yeah. which is a late great novel. It is a great. It is a great novel. It's a huge novel. It is a huge novel. But you read, it's you, full of material. And it's basically one of those. I, I love these novels, which are yeah. where real life figures pop up. So yeah. Hemingway's in it, and yeah. and things like that. That's so right. he didn't particularly like, did he? he? He wasn't. He wasn't very kind about Hemingway. He didn't. No. He didn't like his style. It was kind of well it was anathema to him I suppose yeah, that paired so it was back the reverse style. Of him. He, he's yeah. kind of opposite of yes he's the opposite he's verbose I mean he, he's, he's a Joycean though he didn't always like being called a Joycean but that he was on that side of the divide but I think Earthly Powers has that benefit of having being the readable like a genre novel but having slightly more literary aspirations so it's kind of in that sort of sweet spot between the two it, it's a historical novel in a sense yeah. but it's also covering lots of time that I knew I personally lived it so I recognised real people in there really? and um, yeah I mean there were, there were real people that one might have known and did know so it has a many layered reality the only thing that annoyed me was the way he called James Joyce Jimmy <laughs> which I, I I know that J- James Joyce's wife Nora called him Jimmy, but I don't think other people did. I have mm. a, I just have a sense that 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 he was oh, presuming a bit. Th- yes, mm. yeah. Uh, I just, it's got a very famous first sentence, which I was just trying to remember, but it is. It was the afternoon of my eighty-first birthday, and I was in bed with my catamite when Ali announced that the Archbishop had come to see me. It's brilliant. Which is arguably one of the great first lines in all of literature it is a great great line and it puts all the themes of the book in one sentence yeah, you know exactly what's going on and you've got to read on it's very very good no. and he will be remembered I mean in 100 years time people will be reading Anthony. Well, I, probably I still be just... publishing yeah, yeah, <laughs> they'll probably still be getting through the first <laughs> exactly. edition of the reprint yeah. I mean that book uh, Earthly Powers if they do footnote it all the footnotes will be as long as the book because yeah. it is really so packed with do we still call it intertextuality? Yeah, I don't know I if we, we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's packed with that, and it would be such fun just to unravel every single reference and quote. Yeah, it's a great, it's, a, it's been lovely talking to you uh, about it, Margaret Jabba. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Margaret Drabble and to Charlie Higson. This week's paper is full of other good stuff, including a huge profile of Gandhi, who, like Churchill, suffers from people trying to make him out to be either solely a hero or solely a villain. Next week, Thea, we've just established, is going to call in. Yep, me and Alf. And your dog. But Lucy uh, and I'll be here doing the real work, not from home, actual work. <laughs> well, I don't know. It remains to be seen what, what kind of work I will be doing. No. I suspect there'll be a lot of cleaning and well, scrubbing. Gonna, that's why you're calling in. <laughs> we're going to find out. And we're going to probably be talking about chimpanzees. As we do. Uh, as we do. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.